So Acts 21, we left off in verse 14. We'll pick up today in verse 15 and do a lengthy section. From here until the end of the book of Acts, we really have, uh, some would say, a tedious portion of Scripture. Luke records a lot of narrative of Paul being taken from place to place and uh, being arrested and being on trial and sharing his testimony. And, you know, we might say, well, why did God record all of that? I mean, he could have recorded it once instead of hearing Paul's testimony multiple times. Even today, we'll hear Paul share his testimony of his salvation experience. We already had it recorded in the book of Acts chapter 9, and we'll see it again in the chapters to come. The interesting thing about it is not that he's sharing his testimony again, but why and to whom he's sharing his testimony. If you remember, when Paul got saved, God sends this guy, Ananias, to go and greet him. And Ananias says, oh, you know, this is Saul of Tarsus, who was really a terrorist. And Ananias says, hey, God, you know, this guy has a reputation, and I'm not sure I want to go and and talk to him. And God says, look, Ananias, he is my chosen vessel to share my testimony, to be a witness to the Jews, the Gentiles, and to kings. And so as we go through this last part of the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see being fulfilled. God is fulfilling his promise to Paul that he would not just be a witness, but also suffer. God said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my sake as he shares his story to Jews, which is in this chapter, to kings and to the Gentiles. So that's why all of this is here. That's why all these chapters devoted to these things. We're going to see Paul get shipwrecked, end up on an island. He's making his way to Rome. You'll see how he gets there. Sometimes we have this picture in life of what it's going to be like, right? This is going to be like, God's going to use me this way, and here's what it's going to be like. And God says, well, I'm going to do that, but it's not going to look like you think. Has God ever surprised you with the way he works something out? He gave you a promise, but then he fulfilled it in a really different way than you thought. I mean, I'm thinking when Paul hears that God is going to use him to share the gospel with kings, that'd be like, all right, that sounds like my kind of ministry, you know, prime ministers, world leaders, like I could get into that. But the rest of the story is Paul's going to go in chains as a prisoner to share his testimony in these places. So sometimes God has a way of fulfilling things differently than we conceive them to be. Acts chapter 21 up to verse 14 brings us back with Paul to Caesarea by the sea, sort of the northern part of Israel. He stayed with Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon, and his family. Some prophecies were continually told to him that, hey, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, but you're going to be in big trouble. I mean, we're warning you not to go. We're trying to get him not to go. But he says, look, this is my calling. I've got to go. And he said to them, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? We read that last week. We've seen Paul's third missionary journey come to an end. And now he arrives in Jerusalem. So if you like to kind of outline verses 15 through 25, Paul arrives in Jerusalem, verses 26 through 36. Paul's arrested in Jerusalem, verses 37 on uh, down through the rest of the part we'll talk about today. Paul addresses his brothers in Jerusalem. So that's kind of a little outline. And I give you an outline. I know I don't always outline, but I am today because we're going to cover a lot of words, a lot of biblical grounds, and I'm going to read large chunks and then we'll summarize as we go through. Are you with me, group? Verse 15 begins with, and after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea 
went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So this is Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. It's about a 64-mile trip from Caesarea in the north down geographically on the map. He's, they're going south, but you always, you know, church, when you go to Jerusalem, you always go up, up in elevation. So anytime we refer to Jerusalem, up in elevation, up in spiritual elevation as well. So they packed up their bags from Philip's house. They say goodbye after the tears and the coercion for him not to go. He follows his calling to Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. Remember, he was hustling to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It's been 25 years since Peter preached his sermon and the Holy Spirit had been poured out during that initial time in Jerusalem where the Spirit of God was poured out. So 25 years have passed. And uh, Paul comes, they receive him gladly, which is good news. There's a lot of tension. I'll give you a little bit of historical background. I'll try not to bore you with it. But what I tell you now will apply all the way through this chapter and through the end of the book of Acts in a sense. At this time in the 50s AD, so you know, Pentecost was in the 30s, the, the first Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit, that we read about in earlier in the book of Acts. That's in like 30 AD, depending on what timeline you use. Now we're in the 50s AD. More than 25 years have passed. Maybe it's 57, maybe 58 AD. And in this time, the tensions between Rome and the Roman rulership and the Jews is extremely high. There's a lot of tension, a lot of infighting, a lot of insurrection going on. And so this has caused the Jews really to kind of reaffirm their identity as Jews, reaffirm their connection to the law, uh, reaffirm their, again, their identity as Jews. And so this high, high amount of tensions, you'll see that reflected as we go through. So when Paul comes to Jerusalem, you know, he was sent out by them. Remember Acts 15, Paul, go on, continue your ministry to the Gentiles. And they don't have to become Jews. You remember that? We studied that a while back. And now he comes back and they're glad to see him. And And then he begins to share with them, notice in detail, verse 18 says, he told those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, Paul could have certainly broad brushed his whole trip, his whole missionary journeys about, yeah, you know, we went here, we went there. God did some things, you know, God's really moving among the Gentiles. Let's eat. 
but he doesn't. He goes detail by detail telling of his, of his time in Athens and his time in Corinth and his time in Ephesus and outlining maybe names of people that he'd met and conversion stories and, and the Philippian jailer and his family and, and Lydia by the sea there, all these people that he's got in his life that he's now telling them bit by bit, detail by detail. I don't know if you like detail or not, but I'm a detail kind of guy. Like there's a place for a broad brush and overview, but there's also that place when you talk to someone about real lives. I mean, sometimes we broad brush our testimony, we broad brush our Christianity so much that people forget that we're real people. You know, like you got real details. As I go out and I share my faith or we go to the downtown mall and, and share with people, you really watch when you get their attention. Like I have yours right now. It's because we're talking from the heart about details. And so I can tell someone more than just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or I was a sinner and then I got saved and now my life has changed. That's wonderful. That's broad. That's general. But sometimes I have to get a little specific about the sinfulness of my life. Here's what I was. Here's what I was into. Here's what I did. And here's how God got in hold of me. Here's how it happened. There's a parking lot in Charlottesville. You guys know my story. And then here's how things changed. And so Paul gives this detail to the elders in Jerusalem, James and the whole James gang, I guess you could say, that were there. And they say, Paul, that's wonderful. Look at verse 19. He tells them in detail. Verse 20 says, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So they were thankful for what God was doing around the world. And part of the neat thing about sending people out on mission trips to other places, it's so easy to get... Uh, geographically centered, like life just begins and ends here in Fluvanna County. But God is more than just the God of Fluvanna County. God is at work in Israel. God is at work in Nepal. God is at work in Ethiopia. God is at work in all these places. So people go out and they come back and they give us a little insight into the work of God among other cultures and other people and other nations. And it keeps us connected to the church around the world. And so Jerusalem was now connected financially. Remember, Paul's bringing back a collection from the Gentile churches, but also through the stories of the work of God around the world. Now they say to Paul, hey, guess what, Paul? God's not just at work around the world. He's at work right here in Jerusalem too. Did you catch that? He says, you see, this is at verse 20, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who believed. So God's at work among the Gentiles, God's at work among the Jews that they're believing in Jesus. And the next part, I really wish it read a little differently, but you'll see why in a second. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. These would now, we would call them Messianic Jews, I guess you could say. They're just, they're just part of the church, but they have a Jewish background culturally. And look what the next part of that says. And they are all zealous for the law. Now, I wish if I could have, written this myself, I wish it said they were all zealous for the Lord. And these Jews that got saved, man, they just love Jesus. Now, not to say that they don't, but their cultural background, the political tensions, the challenge to hold on to their identity as Jews in a world where they were dominated by the Romans has led them to be zealous for their law. Again, this is their history. This is their culture. This is their background. And so James tells them, hey, there's a whole bunch of Jews here. They're believers, but they're really zealous. They're really passionate now about keeping the law. 
And here's the problem. Verse 21 tells us they've been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, those Jews that have been dispersed into those Gentile areas, into Asia Minor and other places. We're hearing that you teach the Jews to forsake Moses. Moses is a big deal if you're a Jew. We hear that you're telling them to forsake Moses and saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, the first question is, was it true? Did Paul tell the Jews who were out among the Gentile nations not to circumcise their children, not to keep the law? Somebody say, no, that's not what Paul taught. What did Paul teach? If you look back to some of his teaching, if you read some of his letters, what he taught them was you can't be saved by the law. You can't be made righteous by the law. Matter of fact, he tells them in the book of Romans even that there is an advantage to being a Jew. What advantage is the question to being Jewish? What advantage is the question to being circumcised? And Paul says there's a lot. These were God's people. They have this history, this culture, this awesome heritage with God that is unique to them. And that's awesome. And Paul never told them that to be Christians, they had to stop being Jews. But this is how things got twisted and this is how things got interrupted and mistaken. You know how rumors spread. You know how things get misunderstood and and get twisted. Well, that's what happened. They thought, well, Paul's teaching that people should forsake Moses and forsake circumcising their kids and walk away from all that makes us Jewish. That would make them really upset. So they say, what should we do? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you've come. Paul, they're going to know you're here. People are talking. Once they see you here, it's going to cause a lot of problems. People are a little upset with you right now, Paul. You've got a bad reputation. Don't you hate when that happens? Wouldn't you love to control your reputation? I mean, isn't that what Facebook's all about? I got to control what people think about me. And it's something that we really struggle with. And we really struggle when people misunderstand us. I do too. I, I struggle when I get misunderstood. Believe me. I live in this community in which I pastor, and I have opportunity to talk to, to have relationship with lots of people. And there are people that feel that they can speak on my behalf and not represent me properly. And I hear the stories and people will tell me, you know, that they heard this or they heard that. And I say, you heard what? That is so far from the truth. I don't know who told you that, but it happened. And I've had to learn, and as you probably have to learn, that there's just nothing you can do about it the best thing you can do is let your actions speak for themselves. Let the people that know you, that see you, they'll know who you really are. But we spend so much time trying to defend ourselves and justify ourselves, and and it's just just a hard thing to do. And they're going to try that here in Acts. The Jewish Christian leaders are going to try to orchestrate this thing so that the rift with Paul and the Jews is kind of mended. We'll see what happens with that. Sometimes the best laid plans uh, don't work out so well. So they hatched this plan. Look, Paul, people are talking about what you're saying and what they think you're saying. We're going to gather. They're going to hear that you've come. Verse 23 says, we've got a plan. We've got these guys and they've taken a vow. Probably Old Testament, Numbers chapter six, what's called a Nazarite vow. If you really wanted to spend a time just kind of dedicating yourself to God in a special way, you could do that. You could take a Nazarite vow. As a Nazarite, you would forsake wine. You would not cut your hair. You would just kind of be separated to the Lord for that period of time. And when that vow ended, you'd bring sacrifices to God and you'd shave your head, which takes some people longer than others. 
you'd shave your, and the hair you'd put on the altar of sacrifice with the burnt offering. And so there's these four guys that have made this decision to take this vow and their vow is coming to an end. And they say, Paul, with what everybody's saying, we want you to be a peacemaker. We want you to get involved with these guys, pay for their offerings. And if I was Paul, I'd be like, that's a lot of money. Like I'm a poor itinerant preacher. I make tents, you know, I work with leather or whatever while I'm traveling. I don't make much money. And But Paul doesn't argue about it. He does it. And maybe some would fault Paul for doing it, but I wouldn't fault Paul. Maybe you would say Paul's compromising by getting involved in this. I don't think so. I think Paul never himself ceased to be a Jew. And I think he had no problem with his Jewish heritage. He said himself in 1 Corinthians 9, whatever it takes to build a bridge to people. If I got a Jewish background and I know that I'm not saved by making these sacrifices, I'm not closer to God by taking this vow. It was not mandatory, by the way. It was just an elective thing you could do if you wanted to do it. And I know those things don't save me. I have no problem doing it. If that's going to help me make a connection to the Jews so that I can lead them to Christ, then praise the Lord, I'll do it. And that was Paul's heart. He loved the people of his nation. He loved the Jews. And so they concoct this thing. He's going to do it with them. He's not going to take the Nazarite vow himself because it's like a 30-day commitment at least. But Paul's going to get involved in a ritual purification himself. Why? Because Paul's been traveling in the Gentile countries. So to the Jews, that would have made him unclean. So these guys have taken this Nazarite vow. Paul's going to get purified in a ceremonial way and everything's going to work out. We're all going to hug each other and go home happy at the end of the day and live happily ever after. (laughs) Oh boy, (laughs) wait till you see what happens at the end of the day. Finally, verse 25, before they move on, before we move on, James does reiterate that we don't expect the Jews to become Gentile, to forsake their Judaism. We also don't expect the Gentiles to become Jews. Just have the Gentiles do these few things This is what we announced. This is what we decided in Acts 15. So James reiterates that they haven't changed their mode of operation in terms of the church leadership. Okay, so the plan is set. Let's see how it works out. Verse 26, now we move to the next section. Paul, after having arrived in Jerusalem, now he is arrested in Jerusalem. Paul took the men, verse 26, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the end of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, were not Jews from Jerusalem, Jews from Asia. Where's Asia? Asia is Asia Minor, where Paul's missionary journeys were. This is where the churches of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Ephesus and Colossae and all these other churches, they're all in modern-day Turkey at that time was Asia Minor. And if you look back, I won't take you there today, but if you look back into Acts 13 and 14, you'll see just how much trouble Paul got in in some of those cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derby. That's one thing that happened to him was that's when he got dragged out of the city and stoned and left for dead. And he wakes up, goes back into the city and keeps on preaching. Well, that happened there. The Jews were very, very against Paul, against his message. It created lots of division, lots of problem. And it's those Jews that actually would continue to chase him down. They end up all together there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, and they see Paul. I mean, that's crazy. Like when you see someone you haven't seen in a while, you haven't thought about him in a while, someone that maybe hurt you, 
someone you didn't expect to see there. And here they are in Jerusalem, and these guys see Paul, and they go, is that who we think it is? I mean, is that that guy? Is that Paul who was preaching those things and teaching those things? Can you believe he's here? What's he doing here? And their blood pressure starts to go up as they see him. You know it. There's someone in your life that when you see him, when you're around it, your blood pressure starts to go up. You know how it is. I'm speaking to human beings here. I know. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That's not to pray for him. They laid hands on him, crying out. So now they're yelling in the temple, men of Israel, help. They're crying for help. What? Who's hurt? What's the problem? What happened? This is the man. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and the place. So Paul, I don't know, if it was me, I'd want to crawl into the nearest hole. I try to fit myself in the smallest hole because now all the attention is on Paul and they're yelling at him some pretty serious accusations, aren't they? That Paul was against three things. He was anti-Semitic. He was against the Jews. That he was against the law and that he was against the temple. You want to fire up a Jewish crowd pretty fast, at least an Orthodox Jewish crowd, then you attack those three things. So you better believe they're getting people's attention. And then they say, furthermore... He also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Their accusation is that Paul has brought people that shouldn't be there, there. In the temple, there were different courts. They had, at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies in the temple proper. Now we're talking about the Temple Mount. There's a whole area that had different courtyards. And depending on who you were, you could come closer and closer to God. The high priest, of course, the one that could become the, be the closest, entering into the most holy place once a year. But then you know, the rabbis could come to a certain place, and Jewish men could come to a certain place, and the Jewish women could come to a certain place. And the Gentiles couldn't go as far as the Jewish women. They were in what's called the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a non-Jew could go. That's as close to God as they could get. And there were signs and a wall, a partition, that said, basically, I'm summarizing, if anybody who's not Jewish... Anybody who's a Gentile passes this line, you do so under penalty of death. We're going to kill you. You come any closer to God, we're going to kill you. And they took this deadly serious. So they accused Paul, who was just given a tour. So Paul has with him, look what Luke says, verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought it into the temple. Remember, Paul had with him an entourage of people, of Gentiles, from the churches bringing the collection to Jerusalem. One of these guys traveling with him, his good friend, Trophimus. Trophimus, he says one day, they get up in the morning and they say, you know, it's a beautiful day. I love this city. I was raised here. Let's go for a walk. Let me show you around. Let me show you. When I was a student under Gamaliel, we used to have class right here. We used to eat lunch right here. You know, you know how you, you do when you take someone on a tour of your place of where you grew up. And so he's taking Trophimus on this tour around Jerusalem and people see him with this guy who's clearly not a Jew. And they, look at that word, supposed. See, they didn't really actually see him take this Gentile guy into the temple, but they figured that he probably did. They supposed that he did. Maybe they saw what they wanted to see. Maybe they saw what they were expecting to see. Maybe they were just looking for a reason to accuse Paul. Be careful of supposing things. You know, so much gossip is centered in 
assumption. You didn't actually see it, but you heard it from somebody else and they heard it. And surely we can trust them. I mean, this is, I've known them for a long time. They're trustworthy. And then gossip mill starts and rumors start and, oh, it can just be a nightmare. So they supposed that he'd done it. Verse 30, and all the city was disturbed. Now there's a riot in the temple. It doesn't take much. If you go to Jerusalem, now the temple, even now it's under Gentile control. The Muslims have control of the Temple Mount area. But it is, there's such tension when we go to the Temple Mount. You're not really supposed to carry your Bible there. The Jewish people don't really go there because the Jewish rabbis, they don't know exactly where the Ark of the Covenant was. So they're afraid that they may inadvertently step on that spot, which is a holy place. And so they don't really go. But when Jewish people do go up there, they go under tight security. You pass through metal detectors and security going in. It's a huge amount of tension. And even in this day, same kind of thing, huge amount of tension in this spot. So now this whole uprising has been caused. The people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. There's been no trial. There's been no confirmation. Just, you know, how the mass mentality works. So they grab him and they drag him out of the temple. Notice that they drag him out of the temple. They didn't just lead him out walking under his own ability. They just grab him forcefully and powerfully, and they begin to drag him out. It kind of reminded me of those uh, airline videos, just how disturbing that is when you see someone being dragged through an airplane. The media loves that. The media would have been all over this, right? Oh, the media would have been there. The sharks would have been feeding at this incident. It's a huge deal. So they drag him out of the temple, and they shut the doors. Now, verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison, the Roman soldiers, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. He's asking the crowd. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So get the picture. The riot is unfolding. Paul's been dragged out. There's a crowd around him. It's like recess in sixth grade. You know the picture. You were there. You know, I call you out. How many are in my generation here? You don't remember that? I got beat up all the time in the playground. It was my part-time job. Oh, again? Okay, here we go again. But you know the fight, the kids talk, start talking and someone, there's a fight going to be happening at recess or after school. And so the whole crowd of kids gathers around and everybody's watching these two kids just beat the tar out of each other until the teachers show up. And the teacher comes and everybody kind of scatters like cockroaches. And they just, boom, they disappear, except for the poor kid in the center who's getting beat up. Well, that was Paul. So somehow as this riot unfolds, there's a Roman fortress where the Roman soldiers were housed at the edge of the Temple Mount called the Antonia Fortress. And at the corner, the northwest corner, there would have been probably a guard or a watchman in the top of that tower who would watch over everything that was happening. And their job was to keep peace on behalf of Rome in Jerusalem. They don't like riots, especially during, remember what I said? All the political tension. This is something everybody's on edge now. And as soon as they see that uproar, the guy in the tower says, hey, there's something going on. And immediately they call 911 and out goes the squad cars. No, it's not squad cars. And they didn't have 911. It was funny. One of my trips to Israel, there was a guy from Seattle and he's a firefighter. 
just a neat guy. And so we're at the Dead Sea and we decided to take this walk from our hotel down to the Dead Sea. And the driveway from the hotel was this really long driveway. And we decided to cut through and go down through this little footpath. And it was really a steep hill. And an older gentleman on the trip actually fell and slid down the hill and just barely missed hitting his head on a concrete manhole cover kind of thing. And so we go down to care for him. He was fine, by the way, and he did finish the tour with us. But the fireman starts yelling, call 911, call 911. And we're like, dude, we're in Israel. It's not, it's not going to work. <laughs> so we got him back up to the hotel and everything was fine. But it, uh, So there's no 911 uh, per se, but the word goes out and we find out the commander... His name is Claudius Lucius. We'll meet him a number of times through these next chapters. And he would be commander over a thousand soldiers. And we learn he takes centurions, which would be over a hundred soldiers. There were at least two to three hundred soldiers dispatched to put out this fire, so to speak, that's happening. The soldiers show up, the crowd disperses, and they stop beating up on Paul. And they chain him up. They try to figure out what's going on and they can't get a consistent testimony about who this guy is or what he's done. So when he could not ascertain the truth, verse 34, because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. That's up into that Antonia Fortress area. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. This is no peaceful demonstration. This is a violent group, no doubt, as they were trying to carry Paul. Is he half conscious? I mean, what's Paul's physical situation? He's probably actively bleeding. Therefore, I wouldn't be there to pray for him. You guys told you that. I don't do that. I pass out. But are they spitting on him? Are they hurling insults of him? The mob starts to press in on him. And the soldiers, these hundreds of soldiers, have to actually physically pick Paul up and carry him to save his life. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him, away with him. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you? You heard that said of Jesus. That's what they cried out about him, away with him. So it's not just that they want him out of the temple. They want him off planet Earth. Verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? So he comes to if he's even passed out. We don't know the situation, but he's, he talks. Now, the commander hadn't heard him speak before. So now he opens up his mouth and he so calmly and nicely says, um, excuse me, can I have a word? I've just been beaten half to death, but can I have a word with you? He replied, this is the commander, Claudius Lucius. Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. So this commander makes reference to something we find in history from a man named Josephus about some Egyptian false prophet who leads a bunch of people. Josephus says 30,000. It's probably a yeah. bit elevated. It's not that many, but it leads them outside of Jerusalem into the wilderness and up on the Mount of Olives where he said they would stay and watch as he commanded the walls of Jerusalem to fall so they could go in and conquer the Romans. Well, the Romans found out about this deal and said, we're going to go and, and we're going to put this to a stop. And they did. They killed like 4,000 people at that time. And this is all centered around this Egyptian guy. And by the way, the word assassins is an interesting word. They didn't have um, suicide bombers at this point. 
Uh, so these guys are terrorists. If you have an NIV Bible, it probably says terrorists. If the word really means dagger. So these were what they called the dagger men, uh, the zealots. For These were people that were zealous for Israel. They were very anti-Roman, uh, you know, in the political tensions we live in. There are those that are the devout liberal or democratic, and there are those that are the Republicans, and you are so zealous for your side that you'll do whatever it takes to make sure your side wins. Well, these guys were so zealous. By the way, Jesus had a follower named Simon the Zealot, one of these guys, not these guys, but earlier on, the Sicarii or the Dagger Men. And so the way they would get their agenda forwarded was if there was a public gathering, they would go through the crowd and anybody that they knew to be a affiliating with the Romans or friendly to the Romans, they would pull out their dagger, they would stick you in the side or in the back, they would put it calmly back into their robe and walk on as if nothing had happened. They were terrorists. But he mistakes Paul for having been wrapped up with this whole thing. And Paul says, wait a second, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. What do you mean Egyptian? I'm not Egyptian. I'm a Jew, a citizen of no mean or no insignificant city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, I would have said, I implore you, get me out of here. But he doesn't. You know, Jesus makes you do things that are not normal. Would anybody say amen to that? I mean, I find myself doing things and I go, how did I get here? What am I doing here? Why do I even feel this way? Why do I want to do the thing I'm doing? And Paul had a heart for and a calling to his own people. God had called him to be a witness, not just to the Gentiles, but to his own people. And you can read in the book of Romans, Paul said, I would give my own eternal destiny. I would go to hell if it meant that my nation, my people could be saved. That's pretty hard word, pretty big words from Paul. Now he's got this whole Jewish crowd, all these zealous guys for the law, and he's got a chance to speak to them. And he says, I don't want to miss this chance. So when he'd given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Now, we're going to press on through this because we've heard Paul's testimony before. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me through verse 21. We'll make a couple applications as we go through, and we won't outline each detail of his testimony. You can go back in our archives and listen to the, the sermon on Acts chapter 9 if you want more of that. But we'll go through some of this and we'll make some application to our own lives. So now uh, we had the picture. This is where Paul spoke from, from the steps of that Antonia fortress. There's a great silence. He motions with his hands. Everybody silences. And then he begins to speak. What would you say? What would you say that opportunity to speak to that person or those people that your heart is really for? Would he talk to them about righteousness and the law? And would he outline them in to them doctrinal statements and things like that? Or we'll see what he does is he simply shares his testimony in response to the accusations that were made. What were the accusations, gang? You remember that Paul is anti-Jewish, that Paul is anti-law, and that Paul is anti-temple against this place, these people, and the law. So he's going to use his testimony as a way to show them that they're wrong about him, that he's going to make his defense. That's what he says, brethren and fathers, very endearing terms, speaking of the rabbis, 
hear my defense, my apologia, where we get the word apologetics. Peter would say, let every man be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in him. I find that that's something that can be honed with some work is your testimony. Like you can spend some time thinking through, working through your own story, recounting it to people in different times, different ways, highlighting different parts. I love to tell the story of God's work in my life. I really do, because he changed my life. And Paul is going to do just that. He's going to use that to answer the question, hey, you guys got me wrong. Let me tell you my story. The most powerful thing you have, no one can argue with your story. They can debate Christianity, they can debate doctrine, but they cannot debate the story of redemption that is the summary of your life. The redemption of Jesus Christ is powerful. So when they heard him speaking in Hebrew, so he's multilingual, now they really want to hear. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. You guys are zealous for God. They are. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council, the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So the beginning of his testimony, again, it's not a general thing. He's not just sharing, you know, I used to be a sinner and, and then God saved me and now I follow him. And that's fine, but he's giving some detail. Why? Because he is building a bridge to his audience. He's building a bridge to the listeners to say, you know what? You are not any different than me. The thing you've got in your background, it's such a powerful way to build a bridge Look, if you're a recovered alcoholic, if you, you've struggled with alcohol and you've gotten free, you have a place to talk to somebody that maybe I don't. The alcoholic can look at me and say, what do you know about it? But, but you can say, I know exactly about it. Or maybe you've been divorced. You know, you're struggling with that. Or maybe you grew up in a legalistic background or maybe whatever it is. You know, you used to believe in evolution and science and now you're, you know, you believe in creation and And you can talk to people about those things and you can say, I know exactly. I was a biology major myself. I learned all that stuff. And I speak to people about science all the time now. And you start with some specifics. And he says, look, you guys, I understand you. You're zealous for the law. You're zealous for God. So was I. And more so than you. I was a terrorist against people that spoke against God, that seemed to be against him. The the way the church, I mean, I was persecuting them, dragging people off. And then he says, but here's what happened. Verse six, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now we find out he met Jesus. Jesus found him. How many of you would say that's true of your life, that Jesus found you? You weren't even expecting it. You were going about your business. That was my story. I wasn't in church. I was searching for truth, and God knew that. How many of you understand that God knows when you search for truth, he'll reveal himself to you? He does. Sometimes you don't know where to go. I didn't know where to go. I was reading all kinds of books on Buddhism and self-actualization, and all, I just 
I knew there had to be more than the treadmill, the hamster wheel of this life. That's God, it can't be. It can't be. And so I was searching, and God knew my heart, knew I was searching. I didn't know, I mean, I grew up in a Lutheran church, but I'd walked away from anything to do with that religion a long time before. And God found me in a parking lot. Where did he find you? It's just great to hear the stories about where God has found people. As I journeyed, it happened as I journeyed, I came near Damascus, and all of a sudden I hear this voice, and there's a light, and Jesus sort of breaks into my life against my own will. And those who were with me indeed saw the light. There was a validation. It wasn't just a weird thing Paul was, that was happening to Paul alone. Other people heard the voice and saw the light, and they were afraid. But they didn't hear the voice, meaning that they couldn't make out the words. Paul tells us that they did hear it. They heard the noise, but they didn't hear the words specifically. So verse 10, I said, what shall I do, Lord? That's how you know you've been saved. And when all of a sudden you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? My life, the ownership, the pink slip gets transferred of my life. Now, here's what I want you to do for me. The real humbling servant says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are hard words to say sometimes for some people. And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all things which are appointed for you to do. That's not helpful. Arise and we'll talk about it later. Go to Damascus. He's blind for three days, has to be led in by the hand. Talk about a humbling experience. God says, I'll give you details later. You want details now? I'll give you details later. In my life, the details are still unfolding. For me, it's not, God, what do you want me to do? It's what do you want me to do next? If God had told me what I would do today, 10 years ago, I would have run as fast as I could from him. Are you kidding me, God? Or I would have tried to produce it too soon. So God, what do you want me to do next? He says, arise, go to Damascus. There you'll be told all things and what you will do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. The crowd is riveted. Then a certain Ananias, again, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers, now they're paying attention to this. The God of our fathers, these are Jewish men, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And now, after Ananias comes to him, he receives his sight, Ananias lays hands on him. And then he says these great words in verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? What are you waiting for, Paul? But I, I gotta go through classes. I gotta learn my Bible. I gotta read the Bible through in a year. I gotta do all these things before I can go do anything for the Lord. Why are you waiting? Whatever you know today is enough to get going on. Will you continue to learn? I hope so. But Paul immediately starts preaching in the synagogues. He immediately starts to share what God has done. You can share today. You give your life to Christ. I know a guy in the church, he's been saved just very recently. And God is so at work in his life. And he can already begin to share about that, about what he's doing. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been walking. I've been in fellowship. God is really at work. And my question is, what are you waiting for? A lot of you, you know, you're doing it. You're out there. You're living the life. You're walking the walk and you're doing it. 
but that's not who I want to speak to right now. That's not who God is speaking to right now. The ones that God is speaking to are the ones that are still waiting. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What are you waiting for to be saved? When the dog dies, the kids grow up and are out of the house. Wait till I get that promotion. Wait till my, my retirement's a little bit better. I'm waiting for something. I talked to a group of four young boys. They were high school students on the downtown mall Friday night. We had this very heart-to-heart discussion. We talked about the brevity of life. My senior year, three kids, popular kids, killed in car wrecks. We talked about the fact that uh, no one knows what tomorrow brings. And they were riveted as we talked. I couldn't believe it. These are teenagers. Like they were really hanging on to what we were talking about. And they were getting it. Like, I don't know if I die tomorrow, if I'm going to heaven. I don't have that guarantee. So we talked about that. Uh, They did not get saved that night. Didn't accept Jesus as their savior. But they were thinking. And so as I've announced baptism and as we read these passages, it's just how can I avoid saying these things? How can we sidestep this conversation at this time because of this time in the word together? If you've never given your life to Christ, you've been hearing the word, you've been in the Bible studies, you've been, you know, watching and seeing what's going on, but there's something holding you back. My question is, what is it? And why is it? And what are you waiting for? The truth is the truth is the truth, isn't it, folks? How can I offer you anything better in life than forgiveness and eternity with Jesus Christ?